when Yahya Wahab's father passed away in January of 2006, he canceled his father's phone line. He paid the final bill of 84 ringgit, which was approximately $23. Consequently, he was rather surprised to receive another letter from Telecom Malaysia in April of 2006, and he was absolutely shocked when he opened the letter. In fact, he said he almost fainted because inside was a bill for the equivalent in American dollars of $218 trillion telephone bill. $218 trillion. Now, you may have thought you had a bad telephone bill, but that's really bad, right? There was also a threatening letter informing him that he must pay the bill within 10 days or face prosecution. (laughs) Now that's a debt you cannot pay. And when we face God's law in his courtroom, we face every single one of us a debt. We cannot pay. We face charges we can never meet. We face a standard that is impossible. Perfection. I don't care how saintly you are. When you come up against the perfection that God demands in his law, you will fall short. You cannot pay the price. None of us can. So when we face God's law, it's like getting a $218 trillion bill payable in 10 days. It's beyond our capacity. It's impossible. In Hebrews chapter 12, as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about two mountains. There is Mount Sinai, and there is Mount Zion. And they represent... Two ways to God. Mount Sinai represents the way of the law. Mount Zion represents the way of grace. So let's take a look first of all at Mount Sinai. Living by law pushes us away from God. Verses 18 to 21 of Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling." Even though Mount Sinai is not mentioned in these verses, it is clear that the author of Hebrews is looking back to the time of Moses and and to the experience there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses, of course, up on the mountain. And the description here is clearly a description of that experience, as well as the fact that down in verse 22 we're going to read the contrast to Mount Zion. So it's Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion here. We have a description then 
of the experience that the Israelites went through when they met God in all of his holiness and received the law that demanded perfection and their response to that. The author of Hebrews, just to sort of acclimate us once again, just to rehearse this whole situation, the author of Hebrews is setting us up for what is the fifth warning passage in the book of Hebrews. We've looked at the four warning passages before. You know that those come periodically through the book of Hebrews. We are about to look at least next Sunday, at the fifth warning passage, which really begins in earnest in verse 25. To rehearse what his situation is, the author of Hebrews is addressing people who have professed to be Christians, Jewish people in particular, Hebrews, to the letter to the Hebrews, Jewish people who had professed to be Christians, but were in danger of falling back into the Old Testament law, in the Old Testament way of life. And he is warning them, don't do that. You have come to grace. You have come to Christ. Now don't fall back into legalism and the way of the law. They can never meet the demands of the law. He is warning them that when they turn back to the law and away from the grace of Christ, it's like taking on a $218 trillion debt. Living by law will never get you to God. Though potentially a way to God, nobody can meet it because nobody can be perfect. A performance-oriented Christianity is not the way to draw closer to God. In fact, living by law pushes us away from God. We end up living in fear, as they did, and we are driven away on pain of death from the very presence of God because of our sinfulness, as these verses picture. Now, let me just quickly say the fault is not in the law. Don't misunderstand me. God's law was perfect. The law had a specific purpose, though, and the purpose was to show us our need for a Savior. The purpose of the law was to show us our sin. It was to show us how bad we were or are compared to the holiness of God, to prove to us how bad we are. Now, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, for example, Therefore the law has become our child guardian to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a child guardian. See, it led us to Christ. The law's purpose was to, to point us to Christ because it showed us how bad we were and how much we needed Christ. But once you come to Christ... You don't need the child guardian anymore. You don't need to go back under the guardianship of the law. The law itself was designed to push us to Christ by warning us and showing us our need. But living by law does exactly the opposite. Trying to make it on our own by performing the law does exactly the opposite of the purpose of the law. Essentially, we turn back to Exodus 20 and the experience of the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, how did they experience God at Mount Sinai? These verses are a description. Look at that description. In Exodus, the people faced God at Mount Sinai. It was a tangible mountain. Literally, it was a mountain that could be touched and felt with their physical hands. 
This was a faith that was very tangible. The law was explicit. The law was concrete. But it was also a faith that that came face to face with a, a burning fire. The mountain burned with the fire of God's holiness. The law blazed with God's, God's glorious holy presence. Yet even in that fire they were in darkness, we're told. The people experienced a blackness and a gloom at the foot of the mountain. The whirlwind swept the mountain where Moses stood, while the people below could only watch this tornado of holiness above and around them and in front of them. The trumpet blasted out of that darkness and fire and gloom to warn the people, don't come near the mountain. Do not come near God. Even an animal that wandered too close to the mountain was to be stoned to death. Don't even go and touch your animal. Don't rescue it. Stone it to death. You cannot come near the holy presence of Almighty God. This spectacle, and the Greek word that's used here, is the one we get phantasm from, an otherworldly, ghostly kind of experience. This spectacle was so terrifying that even Moses shuddered and quivered before this holy, awesome God. And he says that Moses said here that that uh, I am full of fear and trembling. Now we have no place in the Old Testament that uses that specifically of Exodus 20, though Moses does say that in another place in the Old Testament. And he may have been drawing from the traditions surrounding Moses as to regards. But the, the intent was clear. I mean, this was a fearful, horrifying, terrifying experience for the people and even for Moses. The whole experience of Sinai said, stay away from me. I am a holy God. You are unholy people. Do not come near me. That's Mount Sinai. You're not invited to draw near. On pain of death, you must not come near God. Now, The author of Hebrews says, why? Why would you want to go back to that when you've come to Christ? Why do you want to go back there? And yet some people do. There are those who claim to be Christians, who live by the law. Such a faith seems so much more tangible, so much more concrete. You know? The law is black and white. It structures everything. It's concrete. It's tangible. I can grab that. It's all about good works and and earning your way to God and racking up the merits. Be good enough and you get to go to heaven. That's something people understand, isn't it? Such people are very religious and there are lots of very religious people in this world and they go around enforcing religion on everyone the whole point is to be good to be holy or else God will get you it's a works orientation to life 
One of the more popular TV ads during the 2010 Super Bowl this last year was sponsored by Audi. And I didn't even remember it was sponsored by Audi till I looked it up because you remember the ad, not who it's sponsored, right? But it was all about the imaginary green police. Standing at the checkout counter of a store, the clerk tells the customer, okay, so it's $37.08, paper or plastic? The customer replies, plastic. Into the scene walks a uniform officer who says, that's the magic word, green police. You picked the wrong day to mess with the ecosystem, plastic boy. And they haul him off in handcuffs. In quick succession, we see you know, different scenes of the green police arresting people of environmental offenses. Green police line the side of a suburban street sifting through garbage cans at the curb. An officer finds a battery in the garbage can of one household. And an officer in charge yells, let's go, take the house. A man stands in his kitchen sink at night with an orange rind in his hand. Suddenly a searchlight blazes on him in his house. And over the loudspeaker, you put the rind down, sir. That's a compost infraction. And the guy puts the rind down and he runs out into the darkness. The green police looking out for you. Well, unfortunately, there are lots of religious people like that. They go around, you know, with the biggest, blackest Bible you can find. And we slam it on people. You messed with the wrong Christian today, brother. It's all about the concrete law. Got to do it right. The problem is that it doesn't work. It didn't work for them either. Because while Moses is up on the mountain and you've got this fantastic spectacle of God's holiness going on, right? And all of this tornado going around them, and they are awestruck and fearful of God, what do they do? They go and have the golden calf and start worshiping idols, even while it's all going on. Doesn't work. They forget that at the end of time, the good doesn't outweigh the bad. Bad. The standard is perfection. It's a $218 trillion debt for everyone. Because, you know what, even if we mess up once, (laughs) there it goes. No longer perfect. See, living by law ends up pushing people away from God. Why? They say, I can't do that. It's way beyond me. And off they go into something else. An English author wrote, Perfect love may cast out fear, but fear is remarkably potent in casting out love. That's what happens when we turn Christianity into legalism. Paul wrote against it all through the book of Galatians. The author of Hebrews is writing against it. We drive people away from God. We want a God, really. What we really need is a God, and we want a God who loves us and provides a way for us to come to Him because we know we are unholy and sinful people. That's the purpose of the law. With the prophet Isaiah, we cry out, I am ruined, but there's a way out. 
There's another way to God, and it is grace. In an early scene from the movie, Luther, the frustrated monk who would eventually, of course, light the fire of Reformation across Europe, He struggled so much with his fear of God. See, he had been brought up in this system that was so oriented around works and performance and law. And he he lived in so much fear of God and of his own sinfulness. He knows his unholiness. And so he's crying out to God in his room. And an older priest passing by Luther's room hears him and enters... I live in terror of judgment, declares Luther. And you think self-hatred will save you, the priest says in this episode? Have you ever dared to think that God is not just? Not just, asks Luther. He has us born tainted by sin. Then he's angry with us all our lives for our faults. This righteous judge who damns us, threatening us with the fires of hell... I know, I know I'm evil to think of it. You're not evil. You're just not honest, says the other priest. God isn't angry with you. You are angry with God. I wish there were no God, Luther blurts out. Martin, what is it you seek? A merciful God. A God whom I can love. A God who loves me. Then look to Christ, he's told. Bind your heart to Christ, and you will know God's love. Say to him, I'm yours, save me. And of course the scene ends with Luther saying in private prayer, I'm yours, save me, as he clutches the cross that had been handed to him. See, Luther knew both sides of this. Living by law pushed him away from God. He felt totally away from God, isolated. I can't get there. But in Christ, you can. And in the grace of God, you can. So secondly, trusting in grace draws us closer to God. This is God's plan. Verses 22 to 24, we continue with the contrast. But, he says, you have come, you have turned, this is your reality, to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels in festal assembly, and and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. This is where you have come. This is where you have turned. In September of 2006... Sociologists from Baylor University released the the results of a study looking into America's different views of God. And they surveyed people across America as to their views of God. And that study was eventually uh, published by the Gallup organization, or parts of it. It identified four distinct views of God in American culture. This is by those who responded to the study and, of course, believe in God. 
Those who believe in an authoritarian God who is angry at humanity's sins and engaged in every creature's life and world affairs, 31.4%. Those who believed in a benevolent God who is forgiving and accepting of anyone who repents, 23%. Those who believe in a critical God who has his judgmental eye on the world but he's not going to intervene either to punish or comfort, 16%. Those who believe in a distant God who is more of a cosmic force that launched the world than left it spinning on its own, 24.4%. Now, take a look at those statistics. Other than the, if you did the math, 5.2% of Americans who fall into the category of other, I guess, here, the ones that responded anyway. There were 94.8% of Americans in the study that had a distinct image of God. Notice that almost 72% of them, three of those categories, have a Mount Sinai view of God or somewhat Mount Sinai view of God. 72% of those who believe in God in America have this sort of Mount Sinai view of God in one way or another. He's critical, he's authoritarian, he's way off there, he's distant. I can't come to him. Now, God does get angry with sin, doesn't he? God does judge sin. God is holy. Those are all true aspects of God. It's not so much that people have a false view of God, it's that they have a deficient view of God. It's short-circuited. God is also a God of love. God is also a God of grace and mercy. And God provided a way to him when there was no other way. And this is the amazing grace of God. We don't deserve it. He still blesses us anyway, doesn't he? Isn't that amazing? Look at the description of this gracious God in these verses. He says, we have come, we have turned to Mount Zion. Zion, of course, was the name of the mountain where David built the city of Jerusalem. He said he conquered that city first and then built it as his capital. Solomon built the holy temple of God. God said of Mount Zion, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. Psalm 132, 13 and 14. The prophet Isaiah said that God will, quote, grant salvation in Zion. Isaiah 46.13. So Mount Sinai symbolized the terrifying, judgmental, distant, holy God. Mount Zion symbolized the inviting, beautiful, and gracious God. Even in the Old Testament, this is the place where you can come to God. God, even in the Old Testament, was spoken of in Zion as a gracious and merciful God. It was a place where God commanded his blessings, and particularly the blessings of eternal life, Psalm 133.3. Now, notice the seven remaining specific blessings that come from the Mount Zion God. We have come to the city of the living God. He's not dead. He's alive. This is the heavenly, not earthly Jerusalem. 
Paul in Galatians chapter 4 verse 25 and following draws a contrast between the heavenly and earthly Jerusalems. And Mount Sinai is the mountain of bondage. The heavenly Jerusalem is the place of freedom and joy. We come to countless numbers of angels, he says. I think that the phrase in verse 23 translated general assembly probably goes with the angels here. And actually we could translate this as the angels, the myriads and thousands and thousands of angels who are gathered in festal assembly, in a festival of praise to celebrate God. That's what we've come to. These thousands of angels who are gathered to celebrate him. And we get to be a part of that. We join them in a heavenly festival of praise to God's grace. We have come to the church of the firstborn. Paul in Romans 8, verses 17 and 29 says that we are fellow heirs with Christ and we are the firstborn among many brethren. We have come to the church of the firstborn who have been registered, he says, or enrolled in heaven. According to Revelation 21, 27, our names have already been enrolled in the Lamb's book of life. Your name's there, already. We've been enrolled in the book of life. We've been registered for eternity when we come to Christ. We have come to a God who is the judge of all people. Yes, that is true, still. Grace does not deny Mount Sinai and the God who judges. Grace never did. Grace provides the way out of the judgment, but does not deny the holiness of God. Grace is simply the way that God provides to meet the judgment of God through the merits of Christ and not our own merits. We have come to the spirits of righteous men who have been made perfect. You know, there are those waiting us in heaven right now who have finally been completed. It refers to the Old Testament saints. That's what he's talking about here. Like Abel and Abraham, Moses and David, who were saved, but their salvation was not complete until Christ came and saved us. Now, we studied that back in chapter... 11 and verse 40. Just, just quickly look back there because at the end of that great faith chapter, that hall of faith chapter, we read, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, they waited for us because in our salvation, they are completed. Remember that concept? That's what he's talking about here. The spirits of the completed righteous ones, David and Abraham and Moses and all of those people, are waiting us in heaven because they are now completed because of what God has done in us. Now, how is this all possible? It is not possible through our abilities, is it? It is possible only because of the Mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ. Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Christ. Who sprinkled his blood and cleansed us, made us pure, 
so that we could be clean and pure and qualified to approach Mount Zion, and that is all grace. We get, we're invited to Mount Zion, not pushed away by the grace of Christ. We can't earn it. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. We can't buy it. We can't be good enough for God. Only by accepting what Christ has done for us on the cross can, be, can we be right with a holy God. That's grace. One author says, in the Christian life, nothing, nothing at all can be purchased at the do-it-yourself shop. You can't make it happen. Lots of Christians try. But a performance-oriented Christianity is a recipe for defeat. The 2010 website of the Chicago Bears football team presented a series of videos that follow the team's rookies as they prepare. It's now time for football season again. It's a little hot right now, but yeah, it's happening. And in that series of videos, there is some information from uh, Coach Lovey Smith's orientation talk with the rookie class. And of course, every rookie is trying to make the team, right? And in the NFL, you start out with 80 players, and you've got to be trimmed all the way down on your roster to 53 players, so a lot of players aren't going to make the team. Of the 19 rookies at the Chicago Bears training camp, probably only about seven are going to make the team in the end. Lovey Smith knew that, and so he addressed the rookies' concerns in his talk to this group of rookies, this 2010 class. And his challenge to them was, make us put you on the team. Make us put you on the team. In other words, play so well in practice that we can't ignore you. Perform so wonderfully that we've just got to put you on the team. Take the decision out of the coach's hands. Be that good. Make us put you on the team. Now, I think that a lot of people in this world think that's essentially what God says to people about heaven and his team. Make me put you on the team. Be so good, impress me so much that I can't ignore you and I've got to have you on my team. Take the decision out of my hands. You want to make the team have eternal life? Make me put you on the team. Does God say that to people? No, that's utterly, utterly false. But lots of people think of it that way. You talk to people all the time. Maybe some of you think that way. It's an easy trap to fall into. No, God doesn't say that to us at all. What does God say? Exactly the opposite. God says, you already know how bad you are. Come to my grace. Trust me. You know that no one is good enough for my team. There's not one person on earth who can make my team. The only way to make my team is to accept that you can't make my team and then accept what I've done for you as payment. It's the only way to make his team. 
He alone qualifies you to be on the team, on his merit, not yours. So why do we keep going back to trying to make it all on our own? Performing and working and struggling. That's the author's question. Turn to God's grace to enjoy God's blessings. Stop trying so hard to be perfect. You'll never get there. I won't either. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do our best to serve God, of course, but we do it by His grace and strength. Stop trying to prove yourself, to perform perfectly. We will only be a part of God's team by accepting God's grace. And we need to learn that lesson about grace. Kathy was one of 13 children raised by a common father and three mothers in a polygamist community in Utah. The community, of course, was part of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is, by the way, actually a sect that split from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints way back in the 1890s and still practiced polygamy. And she tells her story in Today's Christian Woman. Growing up, she says she was burdened by these unrealistic expectations constantly put upon her. We were constantly, she says, told to keep sweet and that perfect obedience produces perfect faith. Great slogans, right? Keep sweet. Behind these sugary slogans lay the impossible duty of living in complete obedience to the prophet. Now, the prophet was a man by the name of Leroy Johnson. Mormon belief stated that he was the earthly leader of of the community and he was the mediator between God and man. So you had to keep sweet with him. We called him Uncle Roy. She said he was a feeble old man who prophesied that he would never die, that he'd become young again and be lifted up to heaven. And if I kept sweet, I'd be taken with him. I looked forward to that glorious day with hope and fear. But the day never came. Instead, Johnson passed away at the age of 93, and he was succeeded by a new prophet, and that totally shattered her life and her faith. Kathy actually ran away with a young man named Matt at the age of 18. The two were married, moved to California, but she couldn't get away from the guilt of her past and the the heavy load that she carried constantly. She said she was ashamed that she had grown up in polygamy and so she did everything she could to prove to people that she was as worldly as they were. She did drugs, she did alcohol, she smoked, she did everything she could to run away from her past. But her thoughts, she said, constantly mocked her. You're an idiot for leaving. You didn't didn't stay sweet. You didn't obey. And now you're going to hell. Because that's what God does. And she just was totally destroyed inside, constantly in life. Well, Kathy and Matt divorced after a couple of years of marriage. Years went by and she met a young man named Brian at work. And Brian was a Christian. And they began attending church and 
She spent time with Brian. He had a purpose in his life. When she told him about his, her past, he shared with her from the scriptures about Mormonism and about works orientation and all of these kinds of things. And she'd, she'd listen. They began praying together. She said, God finally seemed real and different than what she'd expected. One day, Brian's mother asked her about baptism. And she was confused. What did a person need to be baptized, she said. Did a person say a vow or go through a ceremony? How much did it cost to be baptized? Nothing. It's free. (laughs) And it isn't about anything that you do anyway, Brian's mother explained to her. It's, It's simply a statement that you have committed your life to Christ and you trust in his grace for your salvation and not your works. She said, I don't think I've done that. Would you like to? Yes. You see, she had lots of questions. Did you have to keep sweet to make it with God? No. Did you have to be perfect? No. Christ's finished work on the cross saves us. She says, she writes in that article, I was amazed at the simplicity of the gospel message. I cried as I realized I could come to Christ just as I was. He didn't require perfection. Sitting there talking with Brian's mom, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. Several weeks later, following counseling sessions with the pastor to make sure I fully understood, I was baptized. By God's grace, I am now a woman of faith. Did you get that? By God's what? Isn't that beautiful? That's available to each and every one of you. If you are here this morning and in your own way you're trying to keep sweet, trust his grace instead. Come to him. Acknowledge you are sinful and unholy. Yes, everyone is. Acknowledge that you can't make it on your own. But say, Lord, Take me and save me. I trust in the finished work of the cross. What you have done to pay my debt. And that's what's so amazing about grace, isn't it? That he gives us new life. Father, it's so easy to fall into the trap of works orientation, of performance orientation, of legalism, of trying constantly and promoting goodness which in itself is not bad but takes us away to focus on our own abilities and our own works instead of your grace and the cross of your son Jesus Christ. I pray that everyone in this room has stopped trying to keep sweet, stopped trying to be perfect in themselves, and has put their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And if not, Lord, I pray that that one or ones would do so today in the privacy of their heart with you, would respond to your grace and say, Yes, Lord, I trust you and you alone for my salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hymn number 202, Amazing Grace, right? What's so amazing about grace? 